You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And you're listening to the prologue on America's Web Radio, and I thank you for that. This is a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books that you may not be familiar with yet. Now, my name's Doug Dahlgren. I'll be your host for this next hour. Now, I'm an author myself, and I have eight fiction novels that are out there and available. They're action thrillers, some that you just might enjoy. So get to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or uh, Books A Million, all the online sites. Check it out. And also, I'm very proud of a new website we've got up and operating. It's DougDahlgren.com. So go there and check those out. Now, we call this show The Prologue because that's exactly what it is. It's an introduction. And while our introductions are mainly for writers, we love to bring you interesting people with just a good story to tell. Many from other fields and other endeavors, we like to bring those to you and get to know them. Now, if you or someone that you know has a book or that interesting story that just needs to be told, I want you to reach out to me. There's two ways you can do that, two email sites, doug at americaswebradio.com, or you can use Doug at DougDahlgren.com. Either way, I'd love to talk with you, see about scheduling you for a future program. Our guest this hour and our author and publisher, well, that's just for starters. He's an author and a publisher, and we'll get into everything that this guy is involved with in just, just a few minutes. He's a photojournalist. He's got thousands of published photographs, more than 200 cover credits on major outdoor magazines and contributions to newspapers, books, and other magazines through both photos and written material that are frankly just too numerous to mention here. He's an avid outdoorsman and hunter. He has spent a lifetime studying and sharing his knowledge of the history of hunting in this country, primarily the white-tailed deer. Now, before we bring him on, please allow me to recognize two very special groups who make up our growing audience here on America's Web Radio. First, we never want to forget those folks serving in the armed forces of this country, wherever they are in the world. They're working hard to keep us safe back home so we can live our lives as we so often take for granted. Freedom isn't free, folks. It's bought and paid for every day by our men and women in uniform, and we want to thank them and remember them. And I also want to mention real quick our first responders who are here at home. That's those police fire, EMT personnel, the ones that rush to your aid when you get your little tail in trouble. Don't forget about those folks and the job that they do for us. And we thank them, and we're glad they're listeners. Now, it's entirely possible that many of you will recognize our guest's voice from his many appearances on television in segments of Outdoors in Georgia, a PBS program that ran for nearly a decade in the 1990s. He also appeared in videos and other television shows such as Realtree Outdoors, Buckmasters, Georgia Outdoors, and many others. His latest book was published in 2015. The title, Dawn of American Deer Hunting, is a photographic odyssey of white-tailed deer hunting. And this is your prologue. The story of our American heritage would be incomplete without the rich history of white-tailed deer hunting. The gift of survival to our forefathers, the white-tailed deer provided not only food and clothing to the early settlers of this nation, but also income and the freedom to enjoy and expand the reaches of this country's magnificent wildlands. Our nation grew up eating venison and wearing buckskin. 
told through written word and over 300 black and white photos, some from over 100 years ago. This book is a time capsule of hunting and the way things were when our grandfathers hunted for food and camaraderie. The book is Dawn of American Deer Hunting. The author, Mr. Duncan Doby, is here with us. Welcome to the prologue, Duncan. Well, thank you, Doug. I'm very excited to be here. Well, we're proud to have you, sir. It's absolutely our pleasure. You are one of Georgia's preeminent experts on hunting and particularly the white-tailed deer. Uh, but I understand that you had uh, a narrow uh, rescue from, from you know, a whole different way of life when you were about two weeks old. Tell the listeners about that, would you? Well, I did. I, um, I, I was... I, I'm sort of embarrassed sometimes to tell people. It just it depends on who I'm talking to. But I was actually born in the fringes of New York City in Flushing, New York. My parents were from New York. Uh, most of their family was in New York. And my father was transferred, just happened to be transferred to Augusta, Georgia, when I was two weeks old. Huh. So we moved to Augusta, and it's kind of saved my life. It was like Moses going down the river. <laughs> That's you what know, you call a rescued. narrow escape. It exactly. Really <laughs> so I consider myself Southern. Uh, I've I've been a student of the Civil War all my life and the, the Southern heritage that we have, and I really consider myself a, a boy from the South. Uh, excellent. We're glad to have you here. Now, you had the fortune of growing up in Georgia. What part of the state was home for you back in those days? Mostly, uh, we lived in Augusta until I was about five or six years old. Then we moved to the outskirts of Atlanta to DeKalb County when it was still pretty uh, undeveloped. And so I had a, a chance to grow up in a suburban area, but uh, got to do a lot of outdoor stuff as I was growing up. We had a lot of uh, undeveloped land around where we lived. And so myself, my friends, we lived in the woods That's every day. I mean, that's all we did. We lived in the woods. So Kids don't know about that anymore. I mean, they don't. Imaginations are gone. They're all sitting in front of video games. and That is so true. And uh, we, you know, we couldn't wait for school to be over. And... Uh, we were, you know, after school in the afternoons, we were out in the woods every day. We had forts. We had tree houses. We went shooting often. And we, in those days, I think our parents trusted us and to do some of the things we did. And I think back in those days, we sort of knew where to draw the line, too. You know, you did things that might fringe on being uh, dangerous or whatever, but you knew where to draw the line. And so your parents really didn't worry about you going out and really getting in trouble. Can you imagine that today? Where are the kids, the elementary school kids, age 8, 9, and 10? Oh, they're out in the woods with guns, and nobody worried about it. That is so true. It's almost like riding in a car without a seatbelt. And, you know, actually, when I was in high school, I went to Briarcliff High School in DeKalb County, and sometimes after school in the afternoons, we'd go out in the parking lot and look at somebody's new gun that they just bought, and you know, they'd open up the trunk of the car and have a whole trunk full of rifles and pistols and would trade back and forth or go shoot somewhere and that was just uh it was a way it was an accepted way of life and there was no it was never associated with doing anything wrong or dangerous or against the law it was just part of the way we grew up today it's a one-way ticket to guantanamo exactly they'd be calling the swat team (laughs) exactly uh Exactly where along then? We've been talking about going out into the woods and everything, but where? what triggered your interest in hunting? It, it's interesting that my parents, my father um, was my father was, was ill most of my life, and he died when I was fairly young. So 
he never really was able to get out and do much with me, unfortunately. And no one in my family hunted, but for some reason, uh, I love being outside. I love being outdoors. I started reading as much as I, I, I collected books on hunting. And the, the writers of the day back in the 60s when I was coming along, I read everything that they wrote. And I wanted to be just like them. I wanted to go out and be a hunter. I wanted to go to Africa and hunt. And that was sort of a lifelong dream. And, of course, now uh, things have, have the world has changed so dramatically. Uh, I, uh, I never have been to Africa. I'd still love to go, but I think I'd take a camera if I went now. <laughs> well, you've been very successful in your studies and in, in learning what you do. In fact, I mentioned your reputation here in Georgia, but you're actually known as one of the country's top authorities on white-tailed deer. Am I right? Well, I've been very fortunate to sort of specialize in, in writing about whitetails when I started my writing career back in the late 70s, early 80s for some of the local magazines in Georgia. And, and it just one of the magazines that I wrote for was Georgia Sportsman Magazine, which became very popular, uh, started in the late 70s and during the, the, the early and mid-80s, became a very popular hunting and fishing magazine. And the folks that owned that magazine started a whitetail, uh, sort of an exclusive uh, trophy hunting whitetail deer magazine called North American Whitetail. And it was, nobody knew whether it would fly, nobody knew whether it would be successful. They just had this idea and they said, hey, we're going to put out an issue and see how the public responds to it. And I was lucky enough to have a story in that very first issue. And it was just immensely popular across North America, and so the magazine took off, and they be- it became a publication that was produced eight times a year, and I was sort of a, a freelance staff writer for that magazine. I did a lot of writing, got to travel a lot, uh, interviewed a lot of people all over the country, famous hunters and people that were very well known in the industry, and so that really put me on the map and, and got me started, and of course... It, uh, it it helped my enthusiasm, and you know I was inspired by all these people that I met, and so it just it, that's where it sort of all began, and it just expanded from there. I know a lot of hunters, but I don't know too many that would would spend their time thinking about writing. All of them want to get out to the woods and sit around the campfire and clean their weapon the night before, and all this good stuff. What was the transition? What got you really thinking about writing your experiences? When I uh, was in the third grade. Actually, I wanted to be a writer, and I had a f- good buddy, and we would, we sat across the classroom from each other, and we would write these little stories and pass them back and forth, these little one-page stories when we were supposed to be doing our schoolwork, and sometimes the teacher would catch us and take our stories away from us, and but we would we would write like newspaper headlines and some you know blockbuster story. And uh, we did that, and we both just loved to write. We wanted to be writers. And from that beginning, uh, I never lost my interest in writing. I did a lot of reading when I was young, and I never lost my uh, my interest and enthusiasm. And it's funny, I always had this idea that you had to have a lot of talent to be a writer. You know, you had to have this natural God-given talent like an Ernest Hemingway. And I thought, well, maybe someday, you know, I'll somehow I'll get this talent and I'll be able to be a writer and you have to you know you have to have and plus life's experience I think that helps a lot too having something to write about and so uh, for a long time I was sort of afraid to step into it because I thought you know I don't I'm not qualified to be a writer I don't have anything you know I certainly don't have much talent and 
So, in, but anyway, I, uh, as I mentioned, I was got involved with a few magazines, and that really uh, got me started. Magazines were very uh, helpful in and supportive of what I wanted to do, and so I was able to write all I wanted to, and so it worked out very worked well. out very well for all of us. I've been doing it ever since. Now, are there any other genres other than hunting? Are there any other things that you like to write about? Uh, I've written a lot of uh, sort of human interest stories. Uh, I've done a few newspaper columns and things like that. And, yeah, I love to do just uh, human interest type things. And and I, I sort of, as this book reflects, I love the old things. I like to go back. I, I love history. I've been real interested in history all my life. And uh, so I love the old stories, the way people did things a hundred years ago in Georgia, you know, farmers and the way people used to sit on the front porch and just rock in a rocking chair, you know, those kind of things. So the, the good old uh, back to nature type things that we, we forget about these days. Well, the trades and the ability to do those things are being lost. You they know, are. they used to be handed down. Those sessions on the porch with the rocking chair, those were learning periods you know the kids would be sitting there figuring out what was going on that doesn't happen anymore and we're losing all this stuff blacksmiths uh people who know how to deal with weapons reloaders uh that's that's becoming a lost art isn't it that is so true and in the old days you know skilled hunters and fishermen you know when i was growing up my grandfather uh made his own lures we uh, I, I spent a lot of time in new york with my grandparents who still lived in new york and they they had a beach house on fire island which is uh, barrier island off the southern coast of long island and we made our own lures back in those days and that was just commonplace everybody did it. it was just the way it went folks we're here on the prologue on america's web radio we've got the pleasure of speaking with duncan doby and we're going to be back with more from him after these messages When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. 
Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back on the prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest this morning is Mr. Duncan Doby. He is an authority on hunting in general, and his particular specialty is the white-tailed deer. He's got a new book that's just out last year called Dawn of American Deer Hunting, and this thing has over 300 black-and-white photographs that he collected. Some of them are as much as 100 years old, uh, and, and there's stories that go along with this and detailed narrative about the history of hunting in this country. He's looking at the sky while I'm talking. I hope I'm describing it correctly. Now, they call it, the subtitle on this is A Photographic Odyssey of White-Tailed Deer Hunting. So we're proud to have you here with us. Uh, we were talking earlier, you've been a full-time outdoor writer for over 36 years, really. Yes, I have since oh, since the early late 70s, early 80s. Where all have you hunted and guided other hunters? I have been very fortunate to have hunted whitetails, especially uh, across all across North America, mostly in the Midwest. Uh, Texas is one of my favorite places. It's Texas is a different world. When you get out there, it's it, you think you're in another country. And I love I love the wildlife out there. Uh, every the things you see, it's just it's a different world. And I've hunted a great deal in the Midwest, in Iowa, Kansas, Illinois, uh, Ohio. And those Midwestern states tend to have much larger deer than we have in Georgia because of the genetics and their bloodlines. And so they they get a lot heavier and they grow bigger racks. So people love to hunt out there for those deer because they are incredible trophies. And that country, that's mostly farm country. That's kind of a different... Uh, place than than growing up hunting in the woods of Georgia as well, and I've, I've hunted a lot in the east. I've hunted in Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, most of the eastern states, Mississippi, Alabama, just all over. And it's just, everywhere you go is new and different, and it's it's just it's exciting. About how many variety of white-tailed deer would you say there are? There are some thirty subspecies of whitetails that have been. Uh, sort of scientifically named and of those actually it's an interesting fact and most most whitetail gene pools have been diluted because whitetails were killed out at the turn of the century in most states uh, in most states where they're where they're native and so when they were brought back they were started restocking they, uh, there was a conglomeration of genetics with a lot of these deer so it's very few deer herds today have very pure 100 percent genetics in Georgia, however, which the same thing occurred, the Georgia islands that we have uh, down the southeast, the coast and the the coastal areas and the barrier islands off the coast of Georgia, those deer are 100% Georgia deer, genetic deer, and uh, their genetics have never been diluted. So, D- Does habitat have a lot to do with it? Uh, because, like, in north Georgia up around Rome, uh, in fact, the Berry College campus there in Rome, Georgia, is more or less a sanctuary. That's one of the largest campuses. But when you when deer season is there, the deer seem to know, and they come in and punch in, and they go lay around the campus. But these are small deer, uh, as opposed to some of the bigger ones you might see in South Georgia or Middle Georgia. Is that due to their habitat, or what, what's going on? It's actually on due to genetics. Um, 
native-wise, those deer uh, in, in North Georgia, when the deer were restocked in Georgia back in the late 1950s, uh, because of, there was a, a screw worm infestation that really affected the deer, these flies laid these screw worms. So they stopped, Texas tended to stop Texas deer in North Georgia. And the Bar- northwestern Georgia, Berry College, Floyd County area is one area where mostly Texas genetics uh, are found. And those deer are a lot smaller. What happened, and it just was pure happenstance, in, in central and south Georgia, uh, the state was able to buy some deer up in Wisconsin from a deer farm. And those deer in Wisconsin uh, have the genetics for being the largest and, and the largest racks, the biggest body and the largest racks. They're called northern woodland whitetails. And when they brought them down, it just, just happened to be able to get them. And so they brought several truckloads down here, stocked them in several central and south Georgia counties. And those counties, once those deer started multiplying and doing well, their genetics took over and you started seeing some just huge bodied deer growing and this, this, this the, the habitat was very good at the time as well because it hadn't there had been no deer uh, you know eating in the fields or anything like that for years and years and so it's it pretty much virgin habitat outstanding oh i didn't know that so so the the different size deer is not necessarily a, a, a naturally occurring phenomenon this was prompted by man bringing the deer in from different regions. In Georgia especially, uh, everywhere where we have seen record deer appear, uh, they they can be traced to Wisconsin genetics. My goodness. All right. Now, when exactly, we talked a little bit about how you got interested in writing, but exactly when did the writing career really get a bite and get a hold on you? In the early 70s, um, I'd been in the real estate business, and... Uh, I was so land, which I loved being out because we were out, you know, we were out in the woods every day looking at land and selling land, a lot of deer hunting land. And I, the market started getting bad. I think seventy three or seventy four, the market started. You know, we had a little recession, and at that time, I had a little money put away and a little savings, and I thought. I've been wanting to write all this time, and but actually, I kind of started backwards. Um, I decided I was going to write the great American novel, and so I took some time and I wrote the great American novel. And I thought, you know, you, you write this novel, you send it to New York, you get an agent, you know, they send you a big fat check, That's and you're on your way. Yeah. And lo and behold, <laughs> I sent sent my book to New York, and that didn't happen. <laughs> Imagine and that. so I never got that big fat check. I never got much interest in my novel. And I was talking to a magazine editor one day, and he said, you know, you're going about things the wrong way. He said, what you need to do is write magazine stories first and get your name well known and then start writing your fiction so that you can, you know, your name is well known, and that way you'll be able to sell your, your other stories. And so that's what I did. I started doing magazine stories and have been doing it ever since. In fact, since you started, you have authored over 2,000 articles and stories, and your photographs have literally appeared in tons of magazines and in newspapers across this country. Now, that work even got you a position as the editor of American Whitetail Magazine, or North American Whitetail Magazine. Now, tell us about that. That's right. That's well, as I mentioned earlier, North American Whitetail Magazine started in 1983. It was just an idea, and it became sort of the Bible of deer hunting in North America, if you will. And people that read that magazine were very serious hunters who traveled to places like Texas and to some of the hunting destinations, Canada, where there are a lot of big deer. 
and I had been freelancing for them all those years. And in 2004, uh, everybody was getting in the television business, and so North American Whitetail decided to start their own television show. And the longtime editor who had been there was going to transfer over and sort of be the director, producer of the new TV show, and they needed an editor. And so they called me up one day out of the blue, and they said, you know, would you be interested in being the editor? And I think what happened, the magazine is located in Marietta, Georgia, which is fairly unusual, which is right in my hometown and, you know, 10 miles from my house, so it's very convenient to go to their office. And they had, um, I think they had asked quite a few other people you know, interviewed some people for the job, but nobody wanted to move from the Midwest or from Texas to Marietta, Georgia. So they called me up one day, and they, I think out of desperation, <laughs> and they said, uh, would you be interested in being a magazine editor? And I thought, I'd love to do it, but I don't want to have to come into an office every day. I'm not used to going into an office and where you're tied down and you have to be there at a certain time and you leave at a certain time. So my wife and I talked it over, and she was, you know, she really sort of convinced me that I at least ought to give it a try. I was pretty negative about it, and uh, we decided to do it. I did it, uh, you know, started doing it, and it was, it was a great experience for me. And uh, I served as the editor of North American Whitetail for six years, and at that time, the the company had been sold several times. That the company that owned the, the chain of magazines, they, they had actually had a large chain of magazines, outdoor magazines. They had bought, and so anyway, I just I realized that my heart was really in freelancing, and I I wanted to get back. I wanted to write some books, and that was where my heart was. So I decided not to make a, a long term career out of being an editor. And went back to freelancing. But that six years was right in your wheelhouse, though. I mean, the interest you already had in deer and deer hunting, being the editor, meant you were exposed to other works, exactly. other writers' opinions. Exactly. Yeah, all the when we had uh, some of the best writers in the country wrote stories for us, and I got to go to their part of the country and be with them, spend time with them, see how they did things, and we had uh, it was it was a great experience all the way around. So. Uh, I really I cherished those years. It was a, a lot of fun, and it was hard work. Being a magazine editor is you know it's an eighty hour week, but oh, yeah. uh, it's seven day a week job a lot of times. But it was great, and it it really prepared me for getting back just into freelancing and doing some books and doing some other projects that I wanted to do. Okay, we talked earlier about the historical significance of white-tailed deer. Um, today, hunting too often is seen as a sport. Uh, the, the history of that, though, is much more deeply rooted in our survival and our and how we got here. There's so many non-hunters out there that kind of sit in the corner and turn their ear, you know, when a hunter starts speaking. Talk to them a minute. Explain the historical significance of the white-tailed deer and the hunters and what that meant to our survival uh, when we first came here. Okay. Well, there are several things that are really interesting. First of all, um, white-tailed deer are one of the oldest mammals in North America. They've been around for over a million years in North America, whereas a lot of the, the big mammals like the woolly mammoth and the uh, giant, uh, the saber-toothed tiger and things like that became extinct. White-tails made it through all those periods, and they've been here a long, long time. So I like to call them America's deer. They're, they're native to North America only. They, they do go down into uh, some of the, the islands, like in Cuba. They have a small species, subspecies, and down through uh, Central America, but mostly North America. So I love to call them America's deer. 
And I wanted to, I, I love the fact that in your show you touch up, you, you thank our armed forces and our, uh, the people that protect us, our police forces. And I feel like, um, our, our, we have such a relationship with deer, not only because they're native to America, but because we grew up, the first settlers that came to America, they didn't know what to do. You know, and we read stories about Jamestown and, and Plymouth Rock, the colony. And these poor people, they couldn't, I mean, there were fish out in the ocean they could catch. There were deer in the woods. There were turkeys. So they, they had no clue how to hunt. The Indians tried to teach them, and it took a long while for them to catch on. But deer, basically, white-tailed deer from day one, um, helped mold this country. And as, as you said earlier, the, the early settlers and pioneers who started, you know, steadily moving west were, they depended on venison for food and buckskin clothing and then also they they sold the, the skins so they made money selling it was it was a huge economic boost for them because they were able to there was a big demand for deer skins that consistent franchise that they could count on like you see the golden arches you knew what you were getting so well, wherever you went there was the deer you knew you could survive and generally you know there were so many deer that they uh they were here for a long time before they started getting rare. There we go. Folks, we're here this morning with Mr. Duncan Doby. We're learning about whitetail deer hunting and his amazing book, and we're going to be back after these short messages. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back on the prologue here at America's Web Radio. 
We're here this morning with Mr. Duncan Doby. We're talking about his great new book, Dawn of American Deer Hunting. Now, this thing has got over 300 black and white photographs that he was able to collect. Uh, tell us, how is this new book being received? Uh, what kind of feedback are you getting? Well, it's been uh, just for me, it's been phenomenal because the book came out uh, about the middle of November, which was kind of late. I, I hoped the publisher would get it out a little earlier in the fall so that we had some time to prepare for Christmas. And mid-November, you don't have a lot of time to start trying to sell books, tell people about it, you know, a book in hand. And so uh, we did a, a little bit of, we did a couple of mail-outs and things like that. And I was very fortunate uh, right about the time that the book came out, uh, the National Rifle Association has uh, a magazine called American Hunter, and I've done some writing for them. And I had called the editor of that magazine and told them about the new book, and I said, it's got some great old black and white photos, and I'd love to do some kind of little, you know, we could do a little story with some of the photos. And so he said, great, he loved the idea. He was very supportive. And so that came out. That story came out in Jan- the January issue, and of course it was mailed out to subscribers uh, in oh, about a week before Christmas. So uh, NRA is fairly large. Uh, that they have two magazines they put out: one called American Hunter and one called American Rifleman. And if you're a, uh, a member, you can get either one or both if you want to. And so each one of those magazines goes out to several million people. And when that story went out, it was a sensation. It just, and it wasn't me. It was just that people loved the photos, and they did a fantastic job laying it out. Uh, they did a two, a, about a five-page spread, actually. Tell us who your publisher is and where folks can find this book. How can they order uh, their own? The publisher is Krause Publications. Uh, they're owned by a company called F and W Media. They're out of Wisconsin. And you can go to their website. Uh, they have they they also own Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine, which is a very popular national magazine. And they have a website, Deer and Deer Hunting, and they have uh, a number of outlets on the website you can go to and, and, and look up the book and, and buy it directly. It's also available on you know in all the Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon, uh, and most places that sell books. You can find. So, so we can go online and really exactly. just look up Duncan Doby and off we or go. Dawn of American Deer Hunting. Dawn yes. of American Deer Hunting. Yeah, Target. All the big stores that sell books, they, you can find it in just about any one of the big stores on their website. What period of time does this book cover? It starts with old photos. That, that's a very interesting question because photography got very popular during the Civil War, and we see all these Matthew Brady photos and things that were just that really brought the war uh, to light, you know, we can we can look back at those photos. After the Civil War in the 1860s, 1870s, photography was getting very popular, and uh, especially up north in areas like Maine and, and uh, New York, the Adirondack Mountain region, where hunting has been a tradition for many many years. Also, the Upper Midwest, there were a lot of photographers who had um, immigrated from Germany, uh, places in Europe. Italy, Germany, Spain, and these these guys, their trade was photography. So they they moved to some small town and opened up a little shop, and they started taking a lot of these deer pictures. And so this was in the uh, 1870s, 1880s. So we have a huge uh, 
history to fall back on of some of these these photos that have survived from those days. So the book, to answer your question, starts in, in those around the 1870s, 1880s. We have a few photos going back to that period. A lot of turn of the century photos around 1900 when things were really changing, and photography was getting a lot more sophisticated. The photos were getting much easier to take and much better quality. And then in it, it, it comes up into about the 1950s or so. And it's not just regional, is it? I mean, this covers the whole country. It, it does. It covers the whole country where uh, you find typically find north, uh, white-tailed deer range, which goes from, it's mostly all of the eastern states. You find whitetails in almost every state in the Union, from, but mostly from the Rocky Mountains eastward and then in northwest, like they go in uh, Idaho, Washington State, and Canada. And so it does cover, and what I did in the book, I've got, uh, chapters about certain areas like the Adirondack Mountains in Upper State New York and Maine, which has always been a huge hunting destination, and the Upper Midwest, Michigan and Minnesota. Those have always been, and uh, Wisconsin. Those three states have always been huge hunting states. I have a chapter on Texas hunting because Texas has, as I said, it's a it's a different world down there, but it's a it's a wonderful place, and uh, and hunting is a way of life in Texas. Absolutely. Now, is hunting as popular today as it was, say, maybe 40 or 50 years ago? I think in some ways you could say yes. Uh, I think one thing that a lot of people are concerned about is that numbers of hunters have dropped drastically in the last few decades, especially since the baby boomers are starting to uh, retire and get too old, actually, to go out in the woods anymore. And after World War II, I think hunting was a national, uh, it was like baseball. Everybody hunted and fished, and it was just, you just did it. And and it was accepted. If you shot a big deer, it was on the front page of the local newspaper, and even in Atlanta back in those days. And But over the years, numbers have dropped consistently, and and they're not nearly the number of hunters out there there are that you used to be. It's estimated today there's probably about 12 million deer hunters in the country, but there are people, uh, a lot of people are making efforts to, you know, bring young, introduce young people to nature, to hunting, to the outdoors, and all outdoor sports. And so it's it's kind of holding its own right now. There was a period back in the, oh, the early 60s, I guess, where the deer population in Georgia particularly was was low. In fact, there was hardly any here. What was going on? Do you do you know what happened? Well, deer, especially in Georgia, like most eastern states, most of the deer were wiped out of most eastern states uh, by the turn of the century, by the early 1900s. There were very few deer. And um, in Georgia, uh, the, the southern two-thirds of Georgia, Deer were pretty much just totally absent. There were just a few remnant deer, and there were a lot of deer on the, in the coastal areas because some of those the the islands, uh, the coastal islands of southeast Georgia, and some of that jungly area down along the coast itself held a lot of deer because it was so thick and so hard to get to that those deer were able to survive down there. But otherwise, there were no deer in Georgia, and the state started a restocking program actually after World War II, and it started in the 1950s, continued into the 60s, and the herd, they started 
uh, stocking deer in, in all the different counties and the southern two-thirds of the state and, and in North Georgia as well. And uh, within a few decades, like 80s and 90s, the deer, with good protection, the deer herd had increased dramatically. Now, was this from over-harvesting, from too much hunting? Back in the, uh, t- the turn of the century days, there was a lot of market hunting going on, but mostly, for instance, in the North Georgia mountains, it was just hungry pioneers. Just They, they were very efficient hunters. Back in the, from 1850 to about 1900, the pioneers were, were so efficient. They would go out in groups with big packs of dogs and hunt these deer, and if there were 10 deer in a little herd or one deer, they would find that deer and hunt it down. And they... they Mostly for food, and they would, you know, obviously take it home and eat it, and that's that's they loved to hunt. It was a it was sort of a recreation, but it was also uh, very necessary for food. So um, they just really hunted them down to the last animal. So today, when you uh, see that great big uh, rack going by, and you've already used both your tags, uh, there's a reason for that. Isn't yes, there, there is, <laughs> and the man in the state of Georgia deserves a lot of credit because they started. This intense restocking program in the late late 1950s and early 60s. A very good friend of mine was in charge of that program. His name was Jack Crockford, and he's kind of the father of the deer program. He went on to become director of the Game and Fish Commission in the 1970s, but he was really the driving force behind you know getting deer stocked in Georgia. The white-tailed deer stirs emotions in everybody, whether you're a hunter or not. Why do you think that is? They they have a way of capturing your soul. When you see a beautiful, whether it's a beautiful buck standing on a hillside, a doe with several fawns, uh, two or three deer running off through the woods with their white tails flashing, deer are, are motion-stirring animals. And whether you're a hunter or a non-hunter, they affect people. People will stop. You see you know, some deer out in a pasture along a busy highway, and people just stop to look at them. And they don't do that for other animals. So deer are, you know, America's deer have always been very emotion-stirring animals. And, you know, to people who are, are anti-hunting factions, people that are against hunting, uh, it can be very emotional. Oh, yes, absolutely. Where can folks find out more about you? We talked about it briefly, but where can they find out more about you and your books? Uh, I, I actually don't have a website. I should, but I don't. And um, there's a lot of information just on the internet about me. People can find out a lot of things. Just go and just do a oh, search. All the magazines you've worked for, magazines, and, yes. uh, looking up back issues, stories, a lot of websites, um, magazines like North American Whitetail and Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. And but uh, you know, mostly people can just do a name search and find out a lot about my books on the internet and, and different stories I've written. Absolutely. And folks, this book, you, those who are watching us on the screen can see the size of this thing. This, the dawn of American deer hunting. This is a beautiful book. Like I said before, there's stories in here uh, all over the country, going back over a hundred years. Three hundred black and white photographs in here that uh, just will amaze most anybody that uh, can find it. Um, we're here with Duncan Doby, and we're on America's Web Radio with the Prologue. We're going to take our last break just a touch early here if we can, and we'll be back to wind this thing up in just a minute. 
When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back. We're here on the prologue this morning. We've got Mr. Duncan Doby with us on America's Web Radio. We've been talking about his great new book, uh, and it's one that you will want for your library. Looking at it right here at the dawn of American deer hunting, a photographic odyssey of whitetail hunting history. And this book is absolutely amazing. Duncan, you refer to the whitetail deer very often as the most challenging big game on the face of the earth. Why is that? Most people who are avid hunters will agree that the white-tailed deer is the is the most challenging uh, big game species in on the face of the earth. Really, um, they're very very smart animals. They're they know when they're being hunted, and a mature buck that's five or six years old, uh, it's it's a real challenge, and it's again it goes back to the emotions. Uh, of watching deer grow up when you see a fawn and you see, you know today people a lot of landowners are using trail cameras now on their property they have these cameras put out all over their property so they're getting a lot of pictures and they're monitoring the deer herd on their property so they can watch these deer grow from year to year and uh it's just they are such a challenge it's everybody's goal i think is to shoot a big rocking chair buck that they can mount and have put on the wall and it's very difficult to do so they're very challenging whereas almost every, any other species it just does not have that type of challenge you're exact hunting can almost be like a chess match uh, it you're, is you're exactly. sitting in one spot and you're you're hoping that uh, they didn't and see you have this move. big buck and you know he's living in a certain area and you're hoping he's going to come by where right. you're going to be waiting for him especially with a bow in bow hunting you've got to get close you've mm-hmm. got to be within 30 40 yards or so and so he's got to walk by you to make it happen. And so many things can happen. To They are so smart. They're so intuitive. I think they have a sixth sense that they, they know you're out there sometimes, and they just go the other way. Absolutely. Now, you've got a very special name for the whitetail, a little nickname you have for it. Tell the folks about that. 
Uh, nickname? I'm well, not sure. did I catch you flat-footed? Yeah, you did. I didn't make my note here. You've got it down. Um, I beg your pardon. Now, well, I may have mentioned I call them America's deer. I, that was okay. okay that's that there we go. Nick, okay, I'm sorry. I thought you meant some catchy. Um, Never asked a question. I, you don't I, know the answer. I do to. talk to. I do love to say. I wanted the book, even though the book is is about you know hunting a hundred years ago and how they did it. I wanted the book to be patriotic, and I started touching on uh, what, what you said earlier, thanking our armed forces and our policemen who protect us and those kind of things. I wanted this to be a very patriotic book because I feel like deer are, they grew up with this country. There's so much uh, a part of our country that I, there ought to be a national holiday for white-tailed deer. But most of the people who hunt deer are former servicemen or serve people that are currently in the service. There's so many people, policemen, uh, you know, our nation's uh, people who watch over us. And so I love to call them America's deer and, and sort of give it a, a patriotic spin because well, they're so important to the, the, the growth of this country. Absolutely. Non-hunters can be really critical of hunters, and, and we all know that. We've seen that. And yet, you know, before we ever got here, before we landed, the white-tailed deer was the staff of life for the Eastern American Indian. They actually, they absolutely were. And it's funny. It's uh, in the the article I mentioned uh, with with American Hunter, the National Rifle Association magazine. Um, I had the, the little introduction to the article. I talked about how important deer were to the eastern to the the settlers in the east. And somebody wrote in and said, "Well, buffalo were much more important in the west." Well. Buffalo were important to the Plains Indians. Yes, they were the staff of life to the Indians, but they were not the staff of life to the settlers out there because by the time the settlers got out there, most of the buffalo were gone. So uh, whitetail, again, they're, they're America's deer, and they were so important. From the, from the time people settled on the eastern seaboard, again, in places like Jamestown and Plymouth Rock, they started moving westward across the mountains, across the Adirondacks. They would. They depended on deer for food and, and clothing, and uh, to a certain degree, you know, economic money to put money in their pocket. So deer are just they are vitally uh, important to uh, the growth of America and the history of America, actually. So that's why I love to call them America's deer. And you have done. You're, you're an avid hunter. You're an expert on the field, and yet you've taken the time to share with others through your writings. Uh, how many books do you have out now? Nine, is that right? Um, yes, Dawn of American Deer is, is my tenth book, and most, just about all my books have to do with uh, deer, white-tailed deer in one way or another. I do have a couple of other books that I've done. I did a book, uh, I actually did, wrote a children's book about endangered animals called If You've Ever Seen a Rhinoceros Charge, and it profiled a bunch of endangered animals around the country. And things that were happening, why you know why so many uh, species are endangered these days, like manatees and at the time bald eagles, and uh, of course today bald eagles are, are coming along very well and no longer endangered. They've been uh, been restored basically, and so that's a real success story. And I've done a couple of nature books. I did a little book called the Back to Nature Handbook, which had a, sayings about just getting outside and enjoying. Uh, the outdoors, that sort of thing. Your very first book, in fact, was called Georgia's Greatest Whitetails, and that has become quite a collector's item. Tell it us was. about that. And uh, that my first book was published in 1986, 
it profiled at the time all of the record deer that had been taken in Georgia. And at that time, the people were really starting to get interested in uh, if you shoot a big deer, you know what what's the Boone and Crockett score on that deer, and you know how does it rate in the record book? And Georgia, because of the Wisconsin deer I'd mentioned earlier that were stopped in the fifties and sixties. In the 70s and 80s and 90s, people started shooting a lot of the record-type deer. And so I did it. There were quite a few by the, the, the early 1980s. There were quite a few that were known about. And so I went and interviewed all the hunters and uh, in, ended up profiling 43 record holders that uh, had taken record deer across the state from mostly from uh, probably north Atlanta, uh, most of the record deer were taken in South Georgia where the big deer were restocked, where the Wisconsin deer were restocked. And that was a very popular book. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm hearing rumors it's up to, what, $200 a well, copy? Well, it's, it's been out of print for a number of years. People have asked me, when, when, why don't you redo it? And the problem is things have changed so much you know, from the the – the stories and the rating, the rankings have changed so much, and a lot, of, a lot more deer have been taken since those days. And so it's just one of those things. I'd love to do it one of these days, and maybe I will. But it's, update it a little bit. Exactly. Okay. What are you working on now? You got anything new? I'm working on a great a story that's been kind of a lifelong ambition of mine, and it's, uh, it's the name of my new book is called um, Arthur Woody and the Legend of the Barefoot Ranger. And uh, Arthur Woody was a very famous forest ranger who lived in the North Georgia mountains. Uh, he was a mountain man. Uh, he grew up in the high mountains of, in near such as Georgia. And uh, he became a forest ranger just kind of by accident. I mean, when the National Forest Service started buying land for the for the U.S. Forest Service for the to put into to reclaim actually in the early 1900s when so much land had been devastated uh, he happened to be there and he he knew he had grown up and he knew every nook and cranny so they hired him to, to help survey the property he ended up becoming a forest ranger and he actually ended up bringing deer back to the north georgia mountains they had been exterminated uh prior to 1900 and he ended up with his own resources stocking deer in areas up there and starting the the herd that today is would be considered you know the whole north georgia mountain herd and he's a fascinating man and uh so i'm very excited to be doing a, a story about him i want to touch on your awards because we talked about all the writings but you've received awards for this some of them not really under the name of duncan doby there were some uh, stories that you wrote in the North American Whitetail titled The Misadventures of Arnold and Waldo. And you used a, a bit of a, a pen name in those. And people may not recognize it, but it was you. And you won several awards for those humorous columns. Tell us a little bit about that real quick. Well, that's something I've always loved, uh, the, the humor side of things, and especially deer hunting. There, You see so many crazy things that go on with, with hunters. And uh, we started doing this column in 19, I think it was 1998, and it was a monthly column, and uh, it was about these two good old boys from South Georgia named Arnold and Waldo. And every time they went out, they were misfits. Every time they went out in the woods to do something, it was catastrophe. And it was a lot of fun to write and had a new episode every every issue, and they were always getting in some kind of hot water. And... It was. I, it, there were fictional stories. I love to write fiction, and 
and just kind of a takeoff on things you see, the crazy things you just see in life that people do. And it was very popular. I think it ran for seven years, and I uh, did quite a few episodes. And a lot of folks enjoy it. Now, besides just the, the writing, the, the awards for writing, you've been recognized over the years for your work with young cancer patients. Real quick, tell us a little bit about the spirit of uh, the OC, COCA Award uh, that's out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This is Children with Cancer uh, and Camp Sunshine here in Atlanta. Tell us about that. Well, my daughter had cancer when she was very young. In 1974, uh, our six-year-old daughter was diagnosed with leukemia. And at the time, there were no places she could be treated in Atlanta. So we ended up taking her to St. Jude Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee for treatment. And as time went by, she uh, what she had was very serious, but we feel like she was a miracle, living miracle. She survived. She was a long-term survivor. Oh, and um, in 1983, an organization started a camp in Georgia called Camp Sunshine. And it was actually started by um, Dorothy Jordan, who had the, the wife of Hamilton Jordan, who was Jimmy Carter's chief of staff. They had moved back to Georgia after the Carter presidency. And she had always wanted to get involved in a camp. She started this camp. And so our daughter was a camper there the very first year. And... I was very intrigued with the camp, so I went up there and I said, hey, I like to take photos, so you mind if I just kind of hang around and take some photos of all, of it, all these kids having fun? It's a very small camp up in the North Georgia mountains. About 35 or 37 children attended. It was a magical week. Everybody had a, just a special time. And so that became an annual event, This camp, and the Camp Sunshine organization grew, and my wife and I, got very involved as volunteers, and I took photos for, for many, many years, for about 31 years uh, for Camp Sunshine and summer, and a lot of a lot of other events as well, a lot of other annual events as well. And, so and you've done great work for them. In fact, three years ago, you were a semifinalist, or one of four finalists, really, and actually won an award of over $25,000 that went to Camp Sunshine. We, we really commend you for your service there. Thank you. Real quick, we've got just a few seconds. Is there anything we've left out this morning? Uh, just uh, one thing I've left out is I just wanted to say that since this book came out, uh, I have been overwhelmed. I've gotten dozens and dozens of letters from people who have bought this book and uh, and bought it, and they you know, order copies for their family members, for their sons or grandfathers or uncles. And... All of these people basically are American patriots. These people are American. They love America. They love our country. They care about our country. And I wanted the book to sort of have a patriotic uh, feel to it, and that has been so rewarding to me because uh, so many of these people feel that way. Outstanding. Wonderful. All right, folks, the book is Dawn of American Deer Hunting. The author is Duncan Doby. Listen to me. The ball's in your court. I want you to look him up on Amazon and start enjoying his work, this book and the other nine that he's got out there. And please, tell all your friends about our show and how they can find us. Just go to America's Web Radio, tune in, and you can find the archives for the show. And listen, this morning I want to thank again my guest, Mr. Duncan Doby. And for myself, I'm Doug Dahlgren. I want to say be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. If not Duncan's, maybe one of mine. And we'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.